This is Crypto Radio, powered by MoneyWeb, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Crypto exchange Valor reports a five-fold increase in trading volumes since January. The COVID crisis has been a gift to crypto exchanges, such as Valor and Ice Cubed. Is it a sign of panic in the air over the state of the world financial system or simply a natural consequence of cryptos going mainstream? Who better to discuss this than two former bankers? Farzam Ezani, co-founder of Valor and formerly part of the blockchain team at RMB. Hello, Farzam. Hello, hello. Lovely to be here. And Eugene Etzebeth, formerly chair of the Virtual Currency Unit at the Reserve Bank. Welcome, Eugene. Thanks very much. And Good did I get here. that right? Were you part of the, the Virtual Currency Unit at the Reserve Bank? Yeah, it was a working group um, which sort of extends across the, the bank um, and brings in different departments. Well, I guess it's a, an interesting question that both of you formerly came out of the banking sector. So, Farzam, maybe we start with you. Let's talk about the increase in crypto volumes that are happening this year. How do you explain a five-fold increase in trading volume since the beginning of the year? Is there panic in the air about the financial system, or is it just cryptos going mainstream? Yeah, a few things. So I think a lot has changed in the last year now, particularly the five-fold increase on Valor. That's also to do with kind of uh, the fact that we've been in business for about a year and a half. So it's a big growth trajectory for us particularly because we're young and we've, we've been growing very quickly. But if you look at the factors on crypto overall, you have to juxtapose that against the traditional financial system. And we've seen things during COVID, such as the Federal Reserve printing a million dollars per second, you know, through their quantitative easing programs and their stimulus packages, etc. When I say stimulus packages, we need to be careful because there's the central bank, which is the Fed, as well as uh, um, the Treasury in the United States. But between them, there's a lot of money coming into the system. So when people see that, you've got to ask yourselves, what is the end game here? And when you have an asset class, and I should say asset class because all fiat currency or government currencies fall into this category where the supply and demand is effectively determined by a central institution, the central bank, you've got to start asking yourself the question is, what is happening here? Because for the past 49 years, our currencies have been delinked from anything scarce, such as gold, and they've lost about 97% of their value in the last few decades against gold, for example. So when people see that, they say, gosh, there's inflation, and we're losing money because of, of inflation. Is there going to be hyperinflation at some point? And what does this mean that there's so much liquidity coming into the system? And so people decide, gosh, I need to get into an asset class that's scarce, that I can have control over myself as crypto assets, you can have control over them. And so a lot of people are looking into this asset class that is still puny compared to what other asset classes are. And so we're talking about less than half a trillion US dollars when gold itself is about $10 trillion only, let alone real estate, stocks and bonds, cash, etc. So is something happening that the mainstream is coming? Yes, the mainstream has been coming. Are we there where this is a pervasive asset class? We're not there yet. So I believe there's huge growth potential. But things are changing both in the traditional world and in the crypto world to move people into the direction of crypto. Eugene, what about your experience in terms of trading volume at Ice Cubed? So yeah, we've also, we've been around for seven years. So it's, it's um We've seen a probably a twofold increase uh, over the course of this year. What I what I do notice, though, and to to echo what Fazam said, is obviously we you know we're seeing a lot of uptake because of um, 
people concerned about the devaluation of their currency. And also, possibly people in the lockdown have been, you know, faced with this um, notion that maybe they need to take more responsibility for their own finances to, to look around at alternatives and um, not be so reliant potentially on institutional or, or the old guard. And people are starting to, to take their own back in a way and, um, and look at alternatives and to keep their asset, assets in a sort of upward trajectory. I don't know if you saw the, the story we did this week about house prices in terms of Bitcoin. Did you see that? I didn't, no. Over the last decade, you, if you bought a 1 million rand house back in 2011, you would have paid 1,500 Bitcoin. Today, that's allowing for the increase in prices. Absolutely. The price index has gone up to 40%. So a 1.4 million rand house today is about 6 Bitcoin. Yeah. That's yeah. deflationary, right? Absolutely. And I think Absolutely. people start to wake up and they see that. You know, say, gee, why didn't I get involved in this a little bit earlier? Um, you know, and they're starting to measure their wealth, particularly the millennials, and we're measuring their wealth in terms of safe assets like Bitcoin and stable coins and so on. Okay, I wanted to move on to the whole question about. I'm, I'm just interested to find out why you jumped ship from the Reserve Bank, Eugene. Yeah, look, when I was working at the Reserve Bank, I, I got pretty close to to cryptocurrencies, and you know, found that fascinating—a combination of myself being a technologist you know, having some sort of background in economics and then, you know, sort of playing around and understanding game theory. I sort of got to grips with what is what was then a sort of complex topic. And I it sort of aligned with my worldview is that there are changes are coming with regards to, you know, how you can look after yourself with cryptocurrencies and public almost money over internet protocol sort of um, new forms of money. So when I was involved at the Reserve Bank and I got closer and closer to cryptocurrencies, I realized that would be, it's more in line with my worldview and I needed to move. So then I, I moved to a company where I could dabble a bit in some mining alternatives and something called the Lightning Network, which was to level on top of the Bitcoin protocol. And then um, the opportunity came for me to join a cryptocurrency exchange. And I was very excited about that, especially because it's so nascent and it's got the potential to really empower individuals and, and change the, the world. Does the Reserve Bank have a, a plan for cryptos? Do they understand what the blockchain is, uh, you know, or are, are we leaving them behind? Are they, are they decades behind? You know, there are a lot of clever people at the central bank and all in different departments, and they've applied themselves a lot of observation, a lot of playing around in sandboxes, you know, going and, and chatting to other central banks. And, and there are lots of forums like the Bank of International Settlements or uh, various policy and committees. So I think they're very aware of what's going on. I think they are obviously heavily invested in the fiat currency, you know, of, of a nation state. So each nation state... A fiat know, currency, for people who don't know, being something like the rand or the dollar, which is backed by a national government, right? By, yeah, yeah. Yeah, by legal tender laws. Well, backed in, in backed. quotation marks. Right. Yeah, but, backed, yeah, backed by trust. <laughs> right. I think the central bank is very aware of it. Um, the governors and the deputy governors are well briefed. Whether they understand how close we are for a drastic increase in the uptake of cryptocurrencies, that probably is, is that they won't be aware of, of how quickly that will happen. 
Mm. Franzam, let's just talk about the regulation of the sector, and, and there's been a little bit of correspondence. I think you wrote an open letter to the FSCA. The FSCA came out with a, a statement, cryptos were basically equivalent to a casino, and you replied to that. Give us your, your view on that. Is that an irresponsible view from the FSCA, and, and if so, why? Sure. So I actually wrote to the chairperson of the Intergovernmental Fintech Working Group, and that intergovernmental fintech working group, IFWG, comprises several of the regulators. It comprises the SARB, the FSCA, the FIC, National Treasury, SARS, and one other. I think the FIC, National Treasury is also included. So I basically, what happened in this case, it was as a, there was an individual from the FSCA who had put out some public statements, as you mentioned, that you know that, that cryptos are effectively just gambles and you should stay away from them, etc., which is not in line with what the regulators have put out into the public. So what what, uh, Eugene was just saying is that the regulators have actually been very proactive in understanding the space. We have been working with the regulators for several years now, and the regulators have put forward policy papers for consultation of the public. We've responded to them. We've had workshops with them. It's been a very collaborative process, and I, I, I've thought they've been, it's been a very fruitful process. So when these comments came out, which were at complete odds to what the regulators have officially said, uh, I felt that it was an obligation to actually just raise this and say, guys, you know, we're doing a disservice to the public where there is already a lack of information or uh, an education, I should say, uh, you know, about the, the area or about the space to put out comments like that that foster fear and propagate the misinformation in the sector I don't believe is responsible. Well, I think there's a lot of research that has been available, a lot of research done in the last 10 years, which disproves that whole idea that they're, you know, because people are saying, if you're buying a share, what are you doing? You're buying the earnings stream of that company that's listed on the stock exchange. If you're buying Bitcoin, what are you buying? And they say, well, there's nothing behind it. Well, that's not exactly true. There is a thing called a network effect. And the more participants that you get in it, and it's like any money, it's the perception of value that there is in that asset. Is that not right? Correct. So I think one of the things people say, oh, there's nothing backing Bitcoin. And, and this is what I say is that I think the misinformation and the misunderstanding about cryptocurrencies is actually originates from the lack of understanding of our traditional money. So, you know, you ask a lot of people what backs the RAND and many people say, oh, there's gold at the central bank, which is a complete fallacy. There is absolutely no gold. I've taken 100 rand uh, myself, physical rand, and I've gone to the central bank. And uh, the 100 rand is technically a liability on the central bank's balance sheet. And for anybody that knows what a liability means, it means I owe you something. So I went to the central bank and I said, this is a a liability, is it not, of the central bank? They said, yes, it is. I said, well, I'd like to redeem it. And there was some silence in the room and some (laughs) chuckles. And then, uh, you know, a senior person at the Reserve Bank quite rightly said, you know, don't worry, we assure you of the confidence of our financial system. That is very, a very telling response, and it is the accurate response, because our entire financial system is based on confidence. Now, we understand this well here in Southern Africa because of what happened in Zimbabwe, that even if a central bank wants to impose upon the public its own national currency, if the public rejects it, not even the government will accept it for payment of your tax revenue, of your tax obligations. Right. All right. So really, money itself forever has been the societal perception of it. A $100 bill costs 15 US cents to print. That's all. Yet you and I, all of us in this room, in this studio, 
are willing to accept it for hard work or products that we offer because we believe that the next person will accept it because they believe that the next person will accept it, etc. Mm. So this story of money is based on confidence. It always has been. Even gold, gold is a lump of yellow metal. You cannot eat it. You cannot clothe yourself with it. You cannot shelter yourself with it. Maybe some kings can create uh, gold palaces. Not most of us. But the point is that even gold, it's a perception of money. And that's the same with Bitcoin. But Bitcoin works better than every other type of money that we've ever known because it's digital. It can be transferred across borders within minutes. Uh, it can be held by individuals as a digital form, which is the first time that we've had any digital form that can be held outside a financial institution. And I could go on and on and on. So, And it's also not controlled by any central bank or government. Correct. And, and actually, it's controlled by energy. So unlike central banks that can create an unlimited amount of fiat currency or government currency, as you said, and many central banks have said that. They said, listen, there's a crisis, but we will do whatever it takes to get this economy back on par. And what that means is we'll print as much money to get it out into the system as possible. You cannot do that with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin is much more scarce than government money. It's governed by physics and energy. Other money is not. So as I said, to wrap this all up, if you don't understand crypto and you're very skeptical, I think the first place to start is try to understand your current money. Because yeah. if you don't understand your current money, yeah. then you won't understand crypto. Right, Eugene. I mean, this point that Farzan just raised about uh, he tried to redeem a hundred rand bill at the Reserve Bank, and they told him, uh, "No need to panic. You know, we've got this under <laughs> control." Um, I mean, if you look at their balance sheet, they do have uh, sitting on the asset side gold and foreign exchange reserves, right? That's correct. Um, yeah. So where is that gold? Are we being misled? No, the the gold sitting at the Bank of England, where most of it sits. That's the situation that I was aware of four years ago. And um, so, and then the foreign reserves, the last I checked was about 50, 50 billion US dollars. So, and that's essentially, as I understand it, South African citizens' money. But what I do find, and, and along with what Fazam's talking about with cash, is that they can print more cash and there's nothing to back it other than confidence and trust, is that also happens with digital money at the, the Reserve Bank. Yes, so, I think cash is only 3% of the total yeah. money in our system. The so, rest is digital money. Correct. Yeah, and you could, the same the same accounting applies. You, you debit liability and you credit whoever's account positively. So that's how a lot of money uh, can be created and a lot quicker and cheaper than physical cash. There are assets that sit, sit at the central bank and they buy a lot of foreign bonds and, and just to protect the value of the rand. Right. I, I'm just curious why. I mean, we, we're, we're the, you know, the gold haven of the world, or used to be. Why do we have our gold in London? Is it just for custodial reasons? So my understanding was we used to keep gold at the Reserve Bank. There are safes in that under, under the building. My understanding would be because it's for international finance. So often you just move gold from one person's vault at the Bank of England to another country's vault. Okay. Uh, unless, like I think one, one country, um, they try to access its gold um, at the Bank of England and they were told they couldn't. So um, that's also Why? a concern. Uh, I think because the, the Bank of England there? perceived 
that country to have a dictator in in that, that opens up all sorts of problems, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is one of the one of the challenges with our system is that people perceive that there's a lot of injustice. I I don't know about the particulars of this case, mm. but you know, you go to Cyprus in 2013 and because of the the crisis there, the financial crisis, you know, there was a decision by the authorities to say anybody with a, above a hundred thousand euros, we're going to take ten percent from your your bank account, mm. you know, to fund the 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 shortfall that we have. Mm. Now, under what premise do people have the authority to do that? But yet they did it. And so when things like that happen, you start losing trust in trusted institutions, and you start to say, "Gosh, this mismanagement is going to be so rampant, and this injustice that I feel done in by." then I want another alternative. And that's, mm. I think, what crypto offers, another alternative. As far as I'm sticking with you, do you think there's a time coming soon where we might see central banks actually investing in cryptos? I mean, for example, Bank of Japan, they've started buying shares on the yeah. stock exchange, right? Yeah. That's a departure from traditional central banking practice. And I think a lot of other central banks are looking at that as well. Why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that because they're trying to hedge against a devaluation in their currency. For, that, that's the only reason. And if you're gonna do that, then I would imagine cryptos or stable coins or something like that would be a solution to that. What do you think of that? Correct, so let's again go into some of the mechanics of how the central bank works. So when we talk about the central bank printing money, they don't just print money and then check it out there. And uh, I mean, that's been a, a thought, which is called helicopter money. So if you're interested, go and search helicopter money. But typically what the central bank will do is they'll print some money and they'll, they'll buy assets like mortgage-backed securities or government bonds, etc. So the, the banks, let's say, will have some of these assets. And so the central bank will say, listen, we'll take some of those assets off your hands. So that will come onto our balance sheet as an asset. Sorry to get technical. And we'll give you cash, which is our liability, but which is your asset. So we've just replaced effectively non-cash items on the cash's bal- uh, on the bank's balance sheet with cash with the hope that they will lend it out. Then to your point earlier, historically, central banks have bought uh, uh, gold. And we knew this before, in ni- before 1971. The reason they did that was that fiat currency was tied to gold. And then in 1971, that tie was severed. So we've had a lot of central banks, actually the Bank of Canada even published a paper called the the Bitcoin Standard a few years ago as a thought experiment about what what will this look like. So to answer your question about what central banks will do in the future, I think if you take a step back, the notion of a central bank as well is a fleeting notion, if I can put it that way. The Central Bank of South Africa, the SARB, was only established in 1921. The Federal Reserve the most mighty financial institution of the world, if you want to put it that way, was established in 1913, barely a century old, which is, you know, a blink in the the timeline of history. So my view is that these central banks, which are typically tied to the nation state or a country, and the country itself is only about 400 years old, that came about in the 1600s, we are seeing the nation state as a sovereign kingdom have pressures about its existence, okay? Mm -hmm. And what that means is, you know, these nation states that are trying to world, live in a globalized world, and we've seen regulatory issues because regulations change from one piece of land to another, they're kind of getting confused and lost in this new changing world. So my point is that the concept of money being associated with a country is something that is also changing very, very quickly. So whether central banks buy Bitcoin or not, I think within my lifetime, we will very likely see some central banks disappear altogether. Wow, that's a bold prediction. 
If that happens, then what, what do they do? Do they dollarize? Do they back the U.S. Federal Reserve? What do you think, Eugene? It's quite a big question because, I mean, you, you even have, you know, something like the IMF has special drawing rights, which has a combination of a whole collection of, of currencies um, to create sort of almost a value, uh, a currency itself, or something that they can loan to, to countries. So maybe we'll see some more efforts like that where there'll be more of a combination of currencies to start off with. I'm also, obviously, I'm, I'm firmly in the in the cryptocurrency camp. So I do see a move, you know, if we can talk about central bank backed digital currency, you know, even Christian Lagarde from the ECB. The European Central Bank. Yeah. Um, so we're going to see that will come along and that will be essentially a, a central bank version of a currency. But it's still going to have the same flaws. It has an unlimited uh, money supply and that they have even more control. The central bank will have even more control of of your of your funds and brings into question, you know, sort of what what role a bank would play in that scenario. I even wrote an article about this a couple of years ago is that I did I took a view that central banks would start purchasing cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin in the near future. What about this idea of the European Central Bank or maybe even the South African Reserve Bank developing its own crypto? There is a danger that defeats the entire purpose because if you don't have a cap on the amount of coin issued then you're back to the, exactly the same position which Farzam mentioned where the, the US dollar, for example, has declined 97% in value over a century since the formation of the Federal Reserve. I mean, well, that's, that's, that's over the past 50 years, actually. Yeah. Is it over the past 50 yeah. years? Okay, yeah. but that is a shocking statistic to think about because yeah. it's also confusing and it sends wrong information to people because they don't look at their wealth in, in proper terms. They don't have this peg, a stable datum against which to measure it, right? Yeah. So what are we doing? We're, we're measuring our wealth in terms of RAND. Well, the RAND is still a RAND, yeah? yeah. Um, but what was the RAND worth 20 years ago? Correct. What could yeah. you buy with it? And what could you buy with exactly. it? Exactly. You know, what's the basket of goods and services that you can buy? And I think it's important to note that central banks around the world, there's no other way to say this. We talk about inflation, right? It's, oh, what's the inflation rate this year or that year? Inflation is really the devaluation of your money. So central banks have as, a, as their mandate an inflation rate in South Africa of 3 to 6%, which means it is the central bank's mandate to devalue your money by 3 to 6% every year. If they do not devalue your money by 3 to 6% every year, they have failed in their mandate. It sounds really horrible when you say it like that, mm. but that's what it is, yeah. right? So, so that's what inflation is. There's no two ways about it, right? So, so the point is when we talk about central bank digital currencies, which I think are a misnomer because actually we talk about it should be central bank cryptocurrencies because they're talking about a crypto form. It's important to clarify what this means, Kieran, because when you go to a restaurant and you buy a meal, and the bill comes and it says 100 rand. It doesn't say give me 100 digital rands or give me 100 physical rands. It says 100 rand. Whether you settle that in notes and coins or you sell that with a credit card or EFT, there's a one-to-one -one relationship between your physical notes and coins and your digital coins. Now, when they're talking about a CBDC or a CBCC, central bank digital currency, or a cryptocurrency that's governed by a central bank, all they're talking about is introducing a third form of the same money 
So physical notes and coins, which we've had, digital, which we've had for a couple of decades, and now crypto, which we've had, right? So they're all going to be one for one equal to each other. Why is there a crypto version required if you've already got a digital? What's the point? So there's a lot of so there's a, there's a lot. We, this gets very technical, but effectively, right now, the only way to have money that's digital is by having money with a, the commercial bank, right? When and and that means if the commercial bank goes bust, then you could potentially lose your money. It's unlikely to happen because the central bank will will will, will come in. Even though I don't believe we have we have deposit insurance yet in this country, it may have come about. I haven't been following, but. The reason is that some central banks say we want to have direct access to individuals. So a CBDC or a CBCC, a central bank cryptocurrency, if you held that, it would be equivalent to holding a digital balance directly with the central bank, not with the commercial bank. And that changes the game for many, many reasons, because then the central bank could credit people's accounts, for example, with helicopter money, so that you have uh, money available to you. Right now, central banks can't do that digitally, because they have to go and try to push money into the system. But people say that's like pushing a piece of string. Like you can give the cash to, uh, to banks, but you cannot force the banks to lend and put that money into the public domain. Right. So these, there are many uh, thoughts about it, but... But just to be clear, when you talk about monetary policy or the devaluation of those rands and inflation, whether we have a new cryptocurrency that's managed by a central bank or not, it will just be another form of the same monetary policy that we have, the same mandates that we have, the same inflation targets that we have. It's not going to solve anything. No, it's a very compelling proposition for a central bank for the reasons Fazam explained for universal basic income, for helicopter money, to be able to maybe, you know, like the, the Chinese who are exploring this and are actually in a fast state of releasing this in production, potentially to also control certain people's wallets or accounts, you know, like a, a scoring system. It's a very compelling proposition. What central banks do and the nation states is they do a lot of analysis, paralysis, and they say, how will this affect everyone from an economic standpoint, from every single standpoint. But I think ultimately what will happen is that when the Chinese renminbi is, is digitized in a cryptocurrency format, it's going to cause a big upsurge in other central banks going forward with their own and disregarding any underlying cause. And one of the reasons I say that is when I look at what happened with in 1971 with the Nixon shock, when Nixon went off the gold standard. He did it purely, he didn't consult. President U.S., the U.S. President yes. Nixon, for Nixon. people who weren't around. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he didn't widely consult or, or analyze it. You know, they were in a pickle and in a difficult situation, and they just discarded it. I guess what we're starting to learn here is that money has got a lot to do with autonomy. And you may raise that point about nation states. Are banks doomed, do you think, commercial banks? Definitely not. So this is also now a um, misconception in the crypto world. A lot of people in the crypto world say, oh, it's the crypto against the banks. Uh, and my, my firm view is that that's actually a completely false dichotomy. Right? Banks have been around for a very long time. And what is a bank? You can think about a trusted intermediary that manages your value, your things of value, your money. Right? You deposit it with them. You can get loans from them, etc. So will banks remain in their current form? Not a chance. And if they try to, they will perish. But, you know, the RAND itself, 
You know, uh, those of us that are listening to this probably don't remember, most of us don't remember a world without the RAND, but the RAND was only established in 1961. Before that, there was no such thing as the RAND. But banks still existed then, and they've adapted now to kind of service people with RANDs. And so banks deal with things of value. Those things of value will change. And my belief is that they'll start changing from our national currencies to cryptocurrencies in the future. But there will still be intermediaries that will help people manage their own money. So the thing about crypto is that it gives people the choice to take your money and hold sovereignty over it yourself. But in some ways, we have that option today. Right now, we could withdraw all our money from the bank and hold it in cash under our mattress. Not a very good idea for multiple reasons. But there are many reasons that some people would not want to manage their own crypto, and they would want a, a, a professional institution to do that for them. That's what Valor does, right? That's what we do. We're a centralized institution in this decentralized world. So our firm view is that there will be roles for centralized institutions to help people manage their money when that money is crypto. And you can call them banks. We're not a bank right now. We don't accept deposits and things like that. But my point is that things change Banks will adapt. When they don't adapt, they will die and new ones will emerge and then fill their places. But banking as a concept is not going anywhere. Let's switch now to Valor. Tell us about Valor. You've only been going less than two years? Just over two years now, yeah. You're backed by Michael Jordan, who is the former CEO of FNB, and by Bitrex, which is one of the, Bitrex, one of Bitrex, the biggest yeah. exchanges in the world. And you've done a couple of uh, funding rounds. You've just closed off one during lockdown. Yeah, during lockdown, we just raised 57 million rand um, uh, from uh, the 100X group, the 100, 100X Ventures, uh, as well as 40i Capital, which is a venture capital uh, company down in Cape Town. 100X is an international company. And uh, we're very excited. We've, had, we've really been very well received by the market. In the past six months, we have the highest volume uh, traded of Bitcoin out of any exchange or any platform in South Africa. So we're very excited about that. Bigger um, than Luna. For the past six months, yes. But those, those figures go up and down. You know? So um, Luna's a, a great platform. We're a great platform. There are other great platforms. But our, ex our, our growth that's been experienced has been unparalleled by anybody else just because we started from zero and then we got to the highest number uh, or volume trade in the last six months out of any platform in, in the country. How do you account for that growth? What, what was your proposition that attracted people? So very simply, I think a few things. Number one is we had the best fees in the market. And number two, we have obviously biased, but a beautiful product that's very seamless. We have a wonderful API, what's, what's called an API, it's an application programming interface for people that want to, that are technically savvy to allow you know, automated trading. And uh, we've got a phenomenal rewards program. So when you refer other people to Valor, uh, you get discounts as well as commissions from what people trade. So in the month of September, I don't know what the what October was yet, but in the month of September, we're a startup, but we paid out over 5 million rand to our customers. Not 5 million rand in like nice prizes, in cash and in crypto directly into people's accounts. Yeah. So I think people have really liked that. We incentivize people. So if we do well, they do well with what are called maker rewards. So we're really pretty much, I think, the only financial institution, if you want to call it a financial institution, in the world where you can sign up for free. There are no monthly fees. And you can trade if, you're a, if you bring liquidity to our platform. And we will pay you for that. So effectively, your fees are negative. 
Right. And that doesn't exist anywhere else. So I think people have really liked that innovation. We also take security extremely seriously. So we're really trying to do everything as best as we can. We've got very close relationship with the regulators. They know exactly what we're up to. And so our, our growth has been phenomenal, both in user signups as well as volumes. The team is growing. We've been very grateful in this difficult time of COVID to have uh, doubled the size of our team effectively. So we're creating employment. So really, I think the main thing about Valor is that we are a company that has the aspiration to serve humanity. When I talk to my investors, I say, if you want to invest with the purposes that will give you a return by screwing the customer, excuse that language, we will not do that. We will provide a phenomenal service at a phenomenal price and we will grow, and through volume, we'll provide a return. And so far, that's been working very well. Right. Eugene, tell us about Ice Cube. You've been going since uh, 2013. I think you said there's about 80,000 customers that you've, you've accumulated over the last five or six years. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So we, um, so our CEO, Gareth Robler, he's based out of um, London. Um, he brought me on about two years ago to, to help bring out a sort of a local flavor. But w what we focus on at Ice Cubed is, you know, we understand that the trading element and buying and selling is, is pretty standard in, in a lot of respects. So we do a lot of value-added services around that. We've just recently, uh, we're the first player um, in, in Southern Africa and to launch a crypto debit card, which allows people to, to use a debit card you know, at point of sale and at uh, selected merchants. Um, and then we've we've also got a very exciting product that we brought out a year ago where we have a trading pair called the Bulls and the Bears. So we have, we created uh, cryptocurrency tokens, a, a bull token and a, and a bear token. It allows people who want to just come and explore for free and to play uh, with tokens, we'll give you the tokens, and then you can go and bid and offer and you can uh, play around on the trading platform with these um, with these tokens and 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 see before you put real money you can really learn some of it's quite complicated you know buying at, at the market rate or buying a limit order and all these things you can play around with without uh, spending any money just recently we've just launched an e-commerce solution where you know someone who runs a wordpress site or some individual who wants to, to put up a, a qr code on their website, we host an e-commerce platform called BTC Pay Server where you can get people to pay directly into your wallet. So as an individual and any, any person working um, you know, in a taxi rank or in a parking lot or you know, running your own um, website, it allows you to keep track of invoices and to create your own QR codes to get paid into directly into your wallet. We're very excited about those developments. So we don't only see you know, the growth in you know, and how much we can trade uh, or buy and sell about offering a bit more value to our customers. And we're seeing a lot of interest with the people who have been with us and, and the new customers that are signing up. Uh, Farzad, how would you explain the, the type of clients that you're seeing? There was a, a survey that came out, I think it was this week, from The Tokenist, where they, they survey every year who, who's buying Bitcoin. They want to sort of understand the market dynamics. And um, one of the very interesting things was about 47% of millennials felt they had greater trust in crypto than they did in stocks and real estate mm. and gold. If you go up the age bracket to people above 60, of course, that percentage diminishes. So the older you are, the more likely you are to trust, you know, the traditional 
you know, investments, the traditional assets. But the millennials have huge trust in cryptos. Is that kind of explaining the volume that growth that you've seen this year? You'd be surprised. We have a, like a very diverse customer base. So from the very young to the very old, actually. So I think that that is definitely true as a generalization, that the young ones are, are really adopting this much quicker than the older ones. But a lot of the older ones are not being left behind. And I think they start to understand when you start to explain things to them. So regarding who's buying, we've got a, the retail market, which is those individuals, uh, young to old, predominantly skewed towards the young. But we also have uh, institutions and uh, companies that are buying it. And I think, you know, the, the big news of the last few weeks has been a NASDAQ-listed company called MicroStrategy. And they recently had um, a, about a billion U.S. dollars on their balance sheet as a treasury reserve asset. You know, they made some money. They're keeping it on their balance sheet to protect their, their value of their assets. And they made a decision to take half of that, a half a billion U.S. dollars, and convert it to Bitcoin, Bitcoin yeah. to hold onto their on their balance sheet as a reserve, treasury reserve asset. Yeah, fascinating. You know, uh, unbelievable. So there's that. Square did the same thing, which is Jack Dorsey's other company who, who runs Twitter. Another UK-listed company did the same thing. So obviously, as Valor, we also do that. We have Bitcoin on our balance sheet because we believe that's a better place to hold it. We also have Rand as well. But more and more people in the private and public sector companies in the public sector are starting to say, wait a minute, does it make sense? And is it responsible for us just to remain outside of the crypto space? And more and more, their answer is, no, it's not responsible. We actually need to get into this space. So, so the message to institutions there, you know, who's sitting on the fence, and of course they are sitting on the fence, is uh, your irresponsibility can only go on so long and you're going to get <laughs> caught out badly. Yeah. yeah. I think just, just to add one thing on this is that, you know, I don't want listeners to get the perspective that Bitcoin is a one-way train and you're going to buy this and you're going to become rich, yeah. right? There is volatility in this market, you know, and um, for those people that bought Bitcoin at the end of 2017, where, you know, it was about $20,000 at the time, over 300,000 Rand, I believe. Well, it then went down all the way to $3,000, so that was a huge decline was over ninety percent, right? Yeah, about eighty percent, eighty-five percent, exactly. So now it's back up again, and I believe it's going to continue going up. But there's no guarantees to it. So I always tell listeners and our customers, don't be silly about this. If you don't understand it, don't go and put all of your money in this. But if you have some amount to invest, put in an amount that you're comfortable to play with and potentially lose. But it's not so little that it doesn't make you pay attention. So put enough that makes you pay attention. And then as you start learning why the price is going up and down, then you'll get exposure and you'll learn. But don't be irresponsible, just like any other asset class. Uh, you should be responsible. With. All right. We're running out of time. Eugene, final question. I'll, I'll throw both at you. A MoneyWeb reader writes to us and says, I've got a little bit of money. Things are tough, you know, because of the lockdown. And I'd like to get involved in crypto. Should I go for it? And uh, how would you answer that? I mean, it's a very general question. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us have been confronted with those uh, harsh realities, businesses closing down, friends losing jobs. You need to probably stay um, invested in, in RANDs or the current investments and, and have a strategy to, to start getting back into the, the job market or to start a new business. I think to take a, a, a plug or a risk on 
on a, a volatile asset like Bitcoin is, is not the way to go. It should be, you know, once, once that user or that, that reader has now been confronted with the reality of how do I get back into an asset that is performing, because that's probably why they're interested in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, is that once they start, again, generating, you know, a cash flow in their business and, and their families taken care of, then start to, um, in the meantime, research Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but then then start to be prudent about it and start putting in uh, some money, you know, if um, I'm not a financial advisor, but, you know, putting some money in, um, you know, they can tolerate that risk, but definitely not for people that are desperate or potentially destitute. And this is the last roll of the dust. Yeah, if, if this is your last money. Don't go for crypto. <laughs> what do you say, Farzam? You know, it's very dependent on who you are and how much money you have and what your disposable income is. So if you're not in the investing space, so you're living from hand to mouth, would you go and buy a stock or gold? Probably not because you need the money to pay for your kids' education, health care, food on the table, etc. The same logic goes for Bitcoin. Why would you buy Bitcoin if you need to pay for your everyday expenses? But once you have a little bit more than what you're consuming on a day-to-day -day basis, then I would say you're putting some money into maybe stocks and bonds and things like that, maybe. You would be silly not to put some of it into Bitcoin to get some exposure to it. There is no asset class that has no risk. That's a fallacy. So if you think that you're safe just being all in RANDs, you're not. The RANDs have risks too. So understand the risks and uh, place your, your positions accordingly. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much to both of you for coming in. That was Farzam Izani, co-founder of Vela, and Eugene Etzebeth, who is the head of Ice Cubed. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you so much.